Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello and welcome all of you to Ayers on the Road. You're going to be disappointed, just like our producer was today, to learn that it's just me, just Richard today, but Linda has a great excuse. I'll tell you a little about it and then we'll get into our subject matter of the day. I'm in Phoenix playing in a senior tennis tournament, and Linda normally would have come with me, but she is with two of her sisters-in-law, and they're in St. George, Utah, having a great time and just, you know, doing things that women do when they're alone and able to talk without any men bothering them. Um, one of our sisters-in-laws, the wife of my brother, who, as many of you longtime listeners know, passed away, sadly, very sadly, just months ago, just weeks ago, actually. And uh, his wife is just marvelous, and she's strong, and she's making it through a lot of grief. So she's with Linda, and then also... My one remaining brother who's still alive, his wife is also with Linda. So the three of them are down there. They're having a great time. And um, we could have tried to hook Linda in, but I thought, ah, just be there with those sisters-in-law and I'll take over because I've got some really nifty thing. Well, some really somewhat disturbing statistics to share with you along with a little bit of commentary. So <clears throat> let me pose a question and have you all think about it for a minute. <clears throat> I wish we could have a two-way conversation here because I'd be so interested in your opinions on some of this. But here's the question. What is the basic unit of society? I think we've been fond culturally over the last many years long as I can remember, maybe it's just in the circles I travel in, but we've been fond of saying, well, the family, the family is the basic unit of society. And it's easy to see why people come to that conclusion. I mean, you know, there are big, big societal organizations like a country or a state. There are smaller ones like our communities. There are still smaller ones like our our churches and our neighborhoods and so on. And all of those are, are organizational units, right? But I don't know anyone who says, well, the basic unit, in other words, the fundamental unit, the, the, the smallest you can divide it, the thing that is the most basic, like a neutron or an electron within an atom, I guess, the most basic unit is the family. And that's just sort of traditional wisdom. And a lot of people take it further than that and say, you know, <clears throat> the family, we have to define family a little. That's one of the problems, I, I think, as we get into some of the statistics I'm going to give you. But the family, you know, is the thing that ought to, it's the, it's the most fundamental unit, not only of our society, but of our culture, Right and of our economy. I mean, households are the, the thing economists use to measure 
how the economy is going, not individuals, because they're a little harder to define, but a household. In some cases, that may be one individual. But we've gotten used to saying that's the basic unit. But here's here's my fear. I think that most people behave today in this country and throughout the, the Western world, the first world, as it were, they behave and think in a different paradigm than that. They essentially function in the premise that the individual is the basic unit of society. And and we're sort of drawn toward that because we we love the individual. We love independence. We love these things that are part of our heritage. They're part of our constitution. They're part of who we believe we are as a people. And but but the, I want you to reflect for a minute on what changes when we think of the family as the basic unit of society versus when we think of the individual as the basic unit of society. And I'd like to suggest to you that a great deal changes. I'd like to suggest that if if a person really has the paradigm, the mindset, if you will, the attitude that the family is the basic unit, it's the thing that matters, I would suggest that that leads a person naturally toward selflessness, toward sacrifice, toward caring for other people, toward valuing the happiness and the well-being and the flourishing of other people, namely the spouse and the and the children, and perhaps the parents, and perhaps others in the family, it, it goes toward thinking of their well-being and their their flourishing as more important than your own. And almost everyone who has become a parent understands that. I mean, it's 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 hard to understand until you are married or until you are completely committed to someone else or until you are a parent, it's it's hard to say, well, I, I really would, I really would give my life for that person. I, I really do love that person more than myself. I I would be more sad about their their problems or their their difficulties would trouble me more than my own difficulties. That that's a that's a powerful kind of love, and I think it exists primarily in families. I suppose there are some who live the second great commandment so completely that they they care about everyone's welfare more than their own. But uh, I think that's an exceptional rare. That's like a saint, right? For most of us, our first experience in really knowing that we care about someone else's well-being more than our own is when we become married or when we become parents. So when we think the family is the basic unit, it it leads us in that direction toward toward sacrifice, toward selflessness. Not that we don't still care about ourselves, but we care about something else even more. And it leads us therefore towards responsibility, towards doing our best, toward trying to be who we need to be for those that we love, 
not only in terms of supporting them financially, but supporting them emotionally and being there for them and so on. So I'm saying this in a kind of an oversimplified way, but it promotes character, it promotes morality, it promotes um, love in a way that other paradigms do not. Now, shift gears and say, what if you really believe or your mindset or your paradigm or the, the, the thing that governs your behavior and your thought process is a belief that no, it's the individual that's important. It's the individual that is the basic unit of society. Of course, the individual is important, but which one is the real, which one controls how we think and how we live? Is the family the basic unit or is the individual the basic unit? And I think there's a huge, that's a, that's a big thing to explore because even though people who don't have families or even want families can still certainly be good people, good moral people, good people with, with high regard for others and with concern for other people and for the unfortunate and so on. There is undeniably a sense of selfishness, I don't know a better word, when our whole worldview is that the individual is what matters. It, it doesn't promote the same sort of sacrifice and responsibility and selflessness that is promoted by believing that the, the family is the basic unit. So with that as an introduction, and you may agree with part of that or all of it or disagree with all of it, but I wanted to get that out there as a preface to a new Pew Research Center study, a new public opinion poll that I think indicates that the pendulum is swinging toward people thinking of the individual as the basic unit of society and of our culture and so on. Let me read you some of the findings, the summary, and then comment a little on them. Um, today's young adults are reaching key milestones like marriage and parenthood much later in life than their parents' generation did. Still, most Americans ages 18 to 34 who've never been married say they'd like to marry someday. And about half of young adults in that age group who don't have children say they'd like to be parents eventually. So, so that that desire, that sort of innate desire to make commitments and to sacrifice and to become married and to become a parent remains in people's minds as a hope, but it doesn't remain in their minds apparently as a practice. So let me read on. Among adults 18 to 34, 69% of those who've never been married say they'd like to get married one day. That does leave 31%, by the way, who say they, 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 they don't care that if they ever get married. And when asked about having children, 51% of young adults who are not parents say they'd like to have children one day. That Now we're starting to get into the disturbing stuff, only half of young adults say they would like to ever be a parent. And that's shocking. And, and that's a huge change in sentiment. 
And interestingly, 57% of young men say they want children one day. A smaller share of young women, only 45% say they would like to have children someday. This is a national U.S. Pew Research poll. Less than half of young women say they want to be a mother at some point in life. Similarly, a majority of young adults who don't have children say they don't feel much or any pressure from their parents to do so. Only 19% say they feel any pressure. So the parents of young adults are not necessarily pushing them. Maybe that's good, but they're not even encouraging them apparently to, to have children. Now, here's, here's where it gets worse. American adults of all ages tend to say job satisfaction and having close friends are very important in order to have a fulfilling life. But they are much less likely to say the same about being married or having children. Here are the numbers. Among all adults, 18 to 40, 18 to 34, so all broadly defined young adults, all those under 35, 20% say being married is extremely or very important for people to live a fulfilling life. And 22% say having children is extremely or very important and having a fulfilling life. That's one in five of our young people in America believe that being married and or having children, one in five say that is very important or extremely important in living a fulfilling life. For comparison, 68% say the same about having a job or career they enjoy, and 62% say this about having close friends. Think about that. 68% say having a job or career they enjoy is very or extremely important in having a fulfilling life. And only 20% say that marriage is equally that important or having children is equally that important. The bottom line is young people growing up in America today not only don't prioritize families, they are not at all sure whether they even want one. And I, I see this all around. We see this in the speeches we give. We see this as we travel. And I think it may be the biggest problem in our country right now, even bigger than some of the ones we talk about all the time. Let's take a really brief break, and I'll come back, and hopefully by the end of the next segment, put a little bit more of a positive spin, because to me, what we've talked about so far is really dangerous and really negative. We'll be, I'll be right back. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. Richard Iyer back, flying solo. Let me just say at the start of this last segment of the show how much I miss Linda. I don't. I don't mean just in general, which is also true. I miss having her when when I have to speak by myself, or when I have to do the podcast by myself, or when she does. We we really become aware of how, <laughs> I don't know if it's codependent or interdependent or um, just if it's just synergy, but I really miss her. And 
I'd love to be having her give you her take on what we're talking about today. And we will do that next week. We'll start off the show next week with some mention of her reaction to some of the statistics I'm giving you today. So what we've talked about so far, again, just to review, it is pretty shocking that three times as many young Americans feel that having a good job or career is more important in having a fulfilling life than being married or than having children. You don't need any more numbers than that to realize that we're moving away from the family as the basic unit of society and, and the basic ultimate goal of, of us as individuals. Now, again, the first part of the survey lends some hope, right? Because um, nearly three-fourths of those people say, well, I, yeah, I would like to be married someday. And not quite as high, unfortunately, about half say, yeah, I would like to be a parent someday, less than half among women, which is, to me, really troubling and shocking. But in terms of practice and in terms of how important it is in an overall fulfilling life, way down the list, 22% as opposed to nearly 70% for having a good job. So the picture we're painting is, is of a young culture growing up very oriented to their professional career, not very oriented to their family. And the old adage that we used to say a lot in our culture, which is, you know, the, the job is there to support the family, is, is essentially flipped in a lot of young people's minds, a lot of people's minds of any age, to where the family needs to support the career because the career is the thing that brings fulfillment. So I'm troubled by that. Now, let's look at a, a couple of other things that sort of tie in and are part of this larger issue or problem. Um, and, and, it, and it's not a surprise if you think about it. Um, more and more U.S. adults are delaying marriage or foregoing it altogether. We all know that. And the same with children delaying children or deciding not to have children at all, at all. Why? Because it interferes with the career. So again, there's that means and ends, that, that which one supports the other one, and, and the career is winning, the job is winning. And therefore, more and more people are more and more concerned about the quality and income of their job as well, we all should be but much more concerned about that than they are about the quality or situation of their family or even whether they want to have a family. Now, what's happening in its place? Well, we call it cohabitation. Um, people who are not ready to get married, they don't want to make that commitment, but it is convenient to live with another person, convenient and pleasant in some cases, or at least they perceive that it will be. And so cohabitation has essentially taken over for marriage. There are more people now living in the United States who have cohabitated with another unmarried person than there are who've ever been married. It, it, that we're, the, the marriage, if, it's, if there's two horses in this race, 
the cohabitation force is winning. There are more people doing that than than getting married. Um, and and what's interesting about that is that the numbers are a direct refutation of that being a good idea. Let me read a little from an, another uh, Pew opinion poll, um, which is, uh, you know, not very old. It was done uh, in just three months ago. As more U.S. adults are delaying marriage or foregoing it altogether, the share who have ever lived with an unmarried partner is steadily on the rise. Amid these changes, most Americans find cohabitation acceptable, even for couples who don't ever plan to get married. This is morally acceptable. It's not a stigma now to live in, in general statistical terms. That's an acceptable thing to do two unmarried people to live together, even if they don't ever plan to marry. Even so, a narrow majority says society is better off if couples in long-term relationships eventually get married. That's the one concession, people. Bare, barely, just over 50% would agree society is better off if couples have long-term relationships and eventually get married, but, but they're not doing that. The survey also examines how adults who are married and those who are living with an unmarried partner are experiencing their relationship. It finds that married adults are more satisfied by a significant margin with their relationship and more trusting of their partners than those who are cohabitating. So the, the very survey that, that says essentially that people are not very interested in getting married also says that those same people believe or know somewhere in their hearts that a married relationship is more trusting and more likely to last longer than cohabitation. But here's the here's the actual numbers of what's what's actually happening. The share of you of U.S. adults, all U.S. adults who are currently married, has declined in recent decades modestly from 58% down to 53% today. So 53% of adults who are currently married. Over the same period, the share of adults who are living with an unmarried person has risen dramatically, while the share who are currently cohabitating remains far smaller than the share who are married. The share of adults from 18 to 44 who have ever lived with an unmarried partner 60%, 59 to 60% has surpassed the share who has ever been married, 50%. So think about that. Among adults ages 18 to 44, 56% or, or excuse me, 59 to 60% have cohabited. They have lived with an unmarried partner. Well, only 50% of that age group, 18 to 44, have ever been married. So that, that horse is winning. Young adults are particularly accepting of cohabitation. 78% of those 18 to 29 say it's completely acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together, even if they don't plan to get married. But majorities across age groups share this view. Still, even among those younger than 30, a substantial share, 45%, say it's, it would be better 
if couples who wanted to stay together long-term got married. So there's this interesting gap between what we think would be better, what we think is better for people, individuals, and for society is not what we're doing statistically. Views about marriage and cohabitation are linked to religious affiliation. About three-quarters of Catholics and white Protestants who do not self-identify as born-again or evangelical say it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together, even though they don't plan to get married. That's Catholics and Protestants. By contrast, only 47% of black Protestants and 35% of evangelical Protestants share this view that it's okay to cohabitate. So that's interesting from a, a church standpoint. But here's, here's where the rubber really meets the road. The nationally representative survey, this is a survey of 10,000 U.S. adults. That's a big sample size as someone who used to work in, in public polling. And the, the, here's the bottom line. Married adults have higher levels of relationship satisfaction and trust than those living with an unmarried partner. I mean, that's public. That's information. That's survey information. And yet it's not affecting the behavior of the majority. Married adults also express higher levels of satisfaction in their relationship. About six in 10 married adults say things are going very well in their relationship. 41% of cohabitors say the same thing about their relationship with their partner. That's a big change. Which would you take if that was a scorekeeper, 58 or 41? 58% of married people say things are going very well in their relationship, only 41% of cohabitors. So the data is there, and yet it's not causing more people to get married. Married adults are also more likely than cohabitors to say they feel closer to their spouse and partner than to any other adult. Eight in 10 married adults, 80% say they feel closer to their spouse than any other person. A narrow majority of cohabitors, just over 50%, say the same about their partners. So nearly half of those who cohabitate don't even view the partner they're living with as the person that they feel closest to in their life. So the numbers do not bear out any good results or any winning ideas about cohabitation. Um, about six in 10 married adults say making a formal commitment was a major factor in their decision to get married. This is particularly the case among those who did not live with their spouse before getting married. Among cohabitors, only a quarter say that, and, and, and many say they wanted to test their relationship before they made the commitment. Let me just comment personally on that for a minute. We, um, we, we have some rental properties and, and, Lately, in the last few years, most of the couples who want to move in are cohabitating and not married. And in talking to them, it's so interesting on a personal level to hear that very reasoning over and over and over again. We're living together because we don't want to make a commitment until we know that we're really going to be compatible and we can make a, make a marriage work. 
ignoring the simple fact that it is the commitment that will keep them together, and that without the commitment, they have a much greater chance of not being together. So if you project out 10 years, those who are married will have, those who are cohabiting rather than married, will be together about 50% as frequently as those who are actually married. The chances are cut in half that you'll still be together in 10 years. Pretty remarkable, actually. So, um, final thought, um, getting back to something that's a little hopeful. Two-thirds of cohabitors who want to get married someday cite either their own or their partner's finances as a reason why they're not engaged or married. I, I just... That's not the hopeful part. That to me, that's a sad part. That, yeah, we're not we're not getting married because we're not ready yet financially, and that's also the reason marriages are happening later and later, and children are being born later and later, because we just can't afford it, and it's contributed to by these articles that come out almost every year or, or oftener that that estimate oh it's going to cost you know. $295,000 to raise a child or some higher. I saw one that's going to cost half a million dollars to raise a child. They're making all the assumptions that every child needs his own room, that they can't contribute to their own education, blah, blah, blah. So, so financial, again, the juxtaposition between how important people think jobs and finances are versus the family. So we're going to put off family until we have the finances. In other words, the family's there to support the job rather than the other way around. Um, roughly four in 10 cite not being far enough along in their job or career as the reason why they're cohabitating rather than marrying. Um, about half of US adults 48% say couples who live together before marriage have a better chance of having a successful marriage than those who don't live together before marriage. And they're wrong. The fact is that those who make the commitment of marriage have a twice as good chance of still being together in 10 years, as I just mentioned. So we could go on with this, and I don't, I, I don't want to. I want to end it on a positive note that even though these numbers look devastating, and you could say, "Boy, the family's done for," you know, you project the same trends out several more years, nobody will be married. But I go back to the first thing in both of these polls that a solid majority still wants to be married at some point, a, a much slimmer majority, but still a majority, wants to someday be a parent. And I just think what we all need to do, each of us in our own particular realm, our own particular situation, we need to be advocates for marriage. We need to be advocates for children, not, not in the sense of it's our duty, but in the sense of this is where I get my greatest joy. This is where I have the greatest trust. Being married and making a joyful exchange of my independence for interdependence with this person I love more than myself, and then creating together or co-creating with God children who we love 
and would give anything and do anything for. This is real life. This is real power. This is real love. And those who deny themselves that because they think it will impact their earning power or their economic success or their professional lives, I, you know, not to be overly blunt, but they have it backwards. And those of us who don't have it backwards need to be more vocal and more positive about expressing the power and the joy and the beauty of committed relationships in families. And I want to end there. I hope we can all do a better job of that, not only with our own children and our own families, but with society as a whole. Thanks for listening to all those numbers. Bless your heart. I promise you, Linda, will be back next week when we reconvene for the next episode of Ayers on the Road. See you then. 